Good morning. As you have heard already this Advent season, we are walking through the stories of five women who are named in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Riveting Christmas stuff. Um, And we're doing this because in the ancient world, a genealogy was actually like a very carefully arranged set of stage lights, and they were supposed to spotlight all the most important things about you that you wanted other people to notice. They were supposed to show you in your best light. And so like any good stage lighting designer, Matthew has carefully arranged this genealogy of Jesus, but he is doing it with a twist because the five women that he names in Jesus's genealogy are actually all women that we would not expect to maybe even be included. They are all outsiders. They are all marginalized in some way. There's Tamar, who conceives a child out of wedlock with her father-in-law, Judah, and her story spotlights that Jesus comes to bring justice on behalf of the oppressed. There's Rahab, the foreign prostitute, who spotlights the radical welcome of Jesus. Then Rahab becomes the mother of a man named Boaz, who marries a woman named Ruth, who is a foreign widow. And Ruth's story spotlights the selfless love that Jesus will come with. And then Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. And David becomes Israel's greatest king. God even makes a promise to David that his kingdom will endure forever. And so even whenever Israel's kingdom falls to foreign occupation and outsiders come and take the land, uh, the people of Israel hold on to this hope that one day God is going to rescue his people through restoring to them a king from the line of David. And so when we get to the part of the David genealogy, it feels like, man, this is it. Like, this is where Matthew should be, like, turning up the lights, like the fog machine should come out, like the hero is on the scene. This is going to be, like, the big part we've all been waiting for. But that's not what happens. Instead, this is the part of the genealogy where the lights dim and the shadows grow long and the darkness deepens. And we hear... David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She had been Uriah's wife. Her name is Bathsheba. And her story happens in the shadows. It's in the shadows of abuse and violence and exploitation. It's a story that many people in our world today know firsthand. It's maybe a story that some of you sitting here today know firsthand yourself. And Matthew names this brokenness in his genealogy of Jesus because this brokenness matters to God. And it matters to God so much that he will send his son to come and fully enter into its pain and ugliness. Yes, Jesus is the son of David, but he is also the son of Bathsheba. And it is through the shadows of Bathsheba's story that we see the humility of Jesus is the beginning of our healing. The humility of Jesus is the beginning of our healing. And so we meet Bathsheba 
in 2 Samuel 11. And like we've been asking in this series, I'm gonna ask you not to take out your Bible and just listen as I recount the story for you. And so in 2 Samuel 11, King David's army is off fighting the Ammonites, a neighboring kingdom to the east. But David has stayed back in Jerusalem. This probably wasn't shirking duty. This was probably because he would be safe if he stayed in Jerusalem and his army wanted desperately to protect their king. And so one evening, David can't sleep. It's probably a little hot. And he goes up to his rooftop balcony to get some cool air. Now, David's palace was probably like the tallest building in the whole city of Jerusalem. And from his rooftop, he could keep an eye on everything. He could see down into the city. He could probably see into people's courtyards. And that night, he sees a woman bathing. And we learn that this woman is bathing because she's actually performing the monthly purification rituals that Israel's law required of women at the end of their monthly cycle. And so David sees this woman doing this thing that God has told her to do, and he lusts after her beauty. And then he makes a series of disastrous and very harmful choices. First, he does a little sleuthing, and he learns that this woman is Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers named Uriah. And Uriah is currently out of town fighting the Ammonites, so he's not home. And so David then exploits the fact that Bathsheba is vulnerably home alone. He has her brought to him. He has sex with her, and then he sends her back home. Now, before I keep going with the story, I want to say a couple things because if you have maybe grown up in church, uh, you may have heard a version of this story where what happens here between David and Bathsheba is like some kind of um, illicit, adulterous affair where, ba- where Bathsheba has like seduced him from her bathtub and he just can't resist and they're both secretive about it. I want to debunk that version of the story as strongly as possible. Because first, there was no running water in Jerusalem at this time. So bathing outdoors or in a courtyard without complete privacy would have been common. And in places where water is scarce, even today, if you have to go to a public water source to bathe, people can find very creative ways to do that modestly. It's not abnormal. And so we have no reason to think that Bathsheba was just like wantonly exposing herself in public. And the fact that she's ritually purifying herself means that she is doing exactly what she's supposed to be doing right now. Bathsheba's bath is not the problem here. David's lust is. And so second, Regardless of what Bathsheba does do or does not do, the power difference between her and David means that his summons to her is not just this annoying flirtation that she can easily brush off. David is the king. He holds Bathsheba's life and her husband's life in his hands, which means that in this moment, Bathsheba has to do some pretty awful and terrible and fast calculations. Do I refuse David's advances and risk my own life or my husband's life? Or do I accept them and somehow deal with the degradation that will happen and just pray nobody ever finds out? 
The number of women throughout history who have had to pretend that they enjoy a man's attention in order to survive should make us suspicious of any rush to judge Bathsheba here or indict her. The power difference between her and David here is so extreme that we cannot call what happens here consensual. It is not Bathsheba's fault. David uses his power in a coercive way, and it is wrong. Soon after her encounter with David, Bathsheba realizes she's pregnant, and she knows the baby is David's. And so this is like probably the worst outcome she could imagine right now because even though it's not fair and even though she's the one who's been wronged, according to the law, she is the one legally at risk for being charged with adultery and executed for that. And so in desperation, she sends a message to David. It's the only words we have in the entire story that come from her lips. I'm pregnant. And in response to this, You know, David doesn't decide to come clean and take responsibility. He concocts a plan where he hopes that everyone will think that Uriah is the baby's daddy. And so he calls Uriah to come home from the battlefield for some respite. He makes some super awkward small talk. And then he encourages him to go and visit his wife. Uriah, however, refuses to do this. Big problem for David, because in David's army, the standard practice is that while you're out fighting, you stay abstinent. And so it doesn't work the first time. David tries again. This time he gets Uriah drunk. He's like, maybe that'll lower his inhibitions. Still, Uriah refuses to visit his wife, Bathsheba. And so then David gets desperate, and he sends Uriah back to the battlefield And at the same time, separately, he sends some special instructions for his army commander. And he says, put Uriah in the middle of the worst fighting, and then right as the Ammonites come to attack, call the army to fall back so that Uriah will be killed. The commander does this. Uriah is killed in battle. And when word is sent back to David, David responds with like this chilling nonchalance, like, oh, well, that's what happens in battle. Sometimes we lose, sometimes we win. But Bathsheba and God have a very different response. We're told, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So Bathsheba mourns her husband's murder. David then takes her as his wife, getting to kind of swoop in, like, oh, I'm gonna like nobly come and take care of my fallen soldier's widow. But the Lord is angry with what David has done, and he's not gonna let him off the hook. And so the Lord decides to confront David through the prophet Nathan and sends Nathan to David. And Nathan comes to David with a parable a story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man, he says, had loads of sheep and cattle, had so many, he couldn't even count them all. But the poor man had nothing except one small baby lamb that he loved so dearly that he would feed it from his table with his own hand. It says he loved this little lamb as much as if it were his own daughter. 
And so one day when a traveler comes to town and is hungry and needs a meal, the rich man decides not to take one of his own animals to kill and use to feed the traveler. Instead, the rich man takes the poor man's one precious lamb, slaughters it, and uses that to feed the visitor who has come to town. And this story makes David just furious. Uh, Scripture says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? The Bible is clear. What David has done to Bathsheba and Uriah is evil. And in judgment upon that evil, the first son of David and Bathsheba will die when he is only a week old. And it is then their second-born child, Solomon, that will succeed David as heir to the throne of Israel. And, you know, I hear that story, and I'm like, I'm like looking for, like, I'm desperate to try to find, like, some, something good, some silver lining in it. And I guess, like, we could be grateful that Bathsheba is sort of restored to some kind of dignity, like, she gets to be mother to a king, um, None of that offsets for me the darkness of her story enough. A few positive outcomes here cannot possibly justify or make right the evil that has been done against her, the consequences that she has had to suffer unfairly because of someone else's wrongdoing. The abuse she survives does not magically get healed because she gets to become a queen. There is a huge, gaping hole of a wound in her story that cries out for redemption that we don't really get to see resolved in this part of the Bible yet. But when Matthew includes her in Christ's lineage, he is saying that wound, that hole in Bathsheba's story, Jesus is coming to fill it. It is a wound that he has come to heal. And he doesn't heal it by standing on the outside. He heals it by coming and taking it on and entering into it. Theologian James Torrance says it like this. Christ does not heal us as an ordinary doctor might by standing over against us, diagnosing our sickness, prescribing medicine for us to take, and then going away, leaving us to get better as we follow his instructions No, he becomes the patient. Over and over, we can see parallels, ways that the gospel writers will intentionally show us the ways that Jesus is entering into the very specific kinds of brokenness that Bathsheba suffers in her story. First, we see that Jesus enters into the silence of Bathsheba. Bathsheba barely speaks in her entire story. She is portrayed more like a thing than a person. Her voice, her desires, her dreams, her concerns, her fears, her needs, we don't get to hear any of them. It's a silence that actually, I think, just shouts out how vulnerable and mistreated she is. And then Jesus himself, 
will enter into this silent oppression of the voiceless in our world. Even though his, world, his words have power to calm the storms and do miracles and create worlds, every single story that we get about Jesus' life in the Bible, it tells us that whenever he stood in front of his accusers being falsely accused for things that he had not done, that he stood there silently as he was deprived of his rights, denied justice, tortured, humiliated, degraded, Jesus goes silent, refusing to argue and play along with the abuse of power that's happening, refusing to use his own divine power as a getaway card to get out. For centuries, it has been the silence of Jesus that has comforted those who are rendered voiceless in our world. There's an old beautiful African-American spiritual that has this line, he never said a mumble in word, not a word, not a word, not a word. And the first known recording of that song is from Angola prison in 1934 in Louisiana. It's being sung by black inmates who we know were living in an institution that did not treat them with dignity, did, did not protect their human rights, did not offer them due process under the law. So it is in silence that Jesus enters into the plight of the powerless and the voiceless. And even in that place, as he enters their silence, he is speaking a final word there, that in the silence of oppression and suffering, those who suffer are not alone. And the silence is not the end of the story. And so we also see that Jesus enters into the mourning of Bathsheba. Bathsheba mourns for her husband, who was a victim alongside her of this capricious ruler. And Jesus, too, will join the cries of the mourners. At the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he will weep alongside family and friends. And then later, overlooking Jerusalem before his death, overlooking Jerusalem, just like his ancestor David did, in that moment, Jesus will not be creeping on the vulnerable. He will weep like a mourner over the ways that Israel's leaders have rejected God's grace and have not used their power to protect the weak. In Jesus Christ, God feels the brokenness of the world firsthand, and he personally grieves it. And then while Bathsheba, we see, suffers under a bad shepherd— Jesus comes to be the good shepherd. Uh, in Israel, shepherds were often a metaphor for what rulers were supposed to be, actually because King David was a shepherd before he was a king. And so good rulers were like good shepherds who lovingly cared for and protected their flocks, who would bind up their wounds, who would find them when they got lost, who would fight off the predators. And bad rulers were like, bad shepherds who would fall asleep on the job, abuse the flock, take them down dangerous paths. And so when the prophet Nathan confronts David, the accusation is clear. You have been a bad shepherd, man. And centuries later, Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Rather than use his power to abuse, Jesus will use his power to heal. 
And rather than use his divine position to insulate himself from the brokenness of the world, in humility, Jesus will fully take it on. Rather than use his authority for selfish gain and taking from people, Jesus will take the posture of a servant and selflessly give his life. The son of David comes to our rescue, but he's not coming with David's exploitation and manipulation. He's not coming with bright lights and royal robes and executive privilege. The son of David comes to us as the son of Bathsheba. It is through entering the wounds and the grief and the mourning of her story and all our stories that he shows himself to be the good and healing shepherd. I don't want you to miss this, friends. The the scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he freely and willingly humbles himself from his divine position all the way down to the place of the victims and the voiceless of this world, entering into their silence, their degradation, their grief, their abuse, their torture. And he does this not only to bring healing to victims, but also to bring healing to those who hurt them. Jesus makes himself a victim of perpetrators so that both perpetrators and victims can be healed and restored and redeemed. From the moment of his conception in Mary's womb to the moment he rises from the grave, the entire life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is God saying to us, I will become the lowliest among you and I will take the consequences of your sin upon myself so that all of you, Bathshebas and Davids and everyone in between can be rescued and healed of sin's ugliness and power to destroy. The humility of Jesus is the beginning of healing for us all. So some of you this morning, you maybe see a little more of yourself in David's story than you would dare admit to anyone. You maybe recognize that lust. You recognize that power grabbing, that exploitive impulse within you. You recognize the times that you have objectified others or treated them as someone, as a thing to use rather than a person to love. So the invitation for you this season is to behold the humility of Jesus and to go and sin no more. It is to, that's the choice that David eventually decides to make. Admit you're wrong. Take responsibility for the ways that you've hurt others. Make restitution. Let your life be shaped by the grace of our good and humble shepherd. Others of you this morning are maybe sitting more in the place of Bathsheba. Hearing some of the story has brought back memories for you of places that you have been very deeply wounded and hurt. May you behold the humility of Jesus who tenderly cares for you in your shadow places. And in your silence and in your mourning, may you see him weeping beside you. In the words of uh, Beth Moore, uh, who herself is a survivor of abuse, may you see that your God has no dark side at all. He is a defender of the powerless. He is a redeemer of the broken and a healer of those who have been completely fractured. For most of us here today, I think we probably find ourselves a little bit in David, 
and a little bit in Bathsheba. We find ourselves straddling these places at different times. We know that we are capable of hurting people. We know that we ourselves have been very hurt. There was a, a Soviet dissident writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent time in a Russian prison camp in the 1940s and 1950s, and he talked about how complicated it was to try to neatly put people into the category of victim versus victimizer. And he said, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Put in Bible terms, Solzhenitsyn is saying that every single one of us is wounded and suffering the consequences of wrong done against us. And every single one of us is capable of committing that exact same wrongdoing against another. And so for those of us who are jumbled mixtures, hurt people who hurt people. The unflinching humility of Jesus is for us too. It's an invitation to invite him to bring healing to the wounded places of our lives, to find him in those shadowy spaces. And it's also an invitation for us to follow him as the good shepherd, to repent of our lust for power, to make space for the voiceless in our lives, to weep with those who weep, and to worship at the feet of the one who has come as a servant, washing ours. If Jesus is our king, if we stand in the lineage of Bathsheba, who shows us this humility, then we know that this humility of Christ is the beginning of our healing. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are love and truth together, and so we are bold to bear our souls before you. Would you shine your light in the shadowed places of our lives? Humble shepherd, would you bring healing to our wounded places? Would you cast out our sin and lead us into your freedom? Thank you, Jesus, that you conspire to save us, not by staying far away, but by diving into the messiness and the brokenness to the deepest depths. You have felt the wounds of our hearts and you have taken them on. You see how bad off we can get and you don't shy away. Lord Jesus, would we see that humility that you show to us and would that be the beginning of our healing and our rescue? It's in your name that we pray, amen.